And so, like, unless Vittoria Vetra is, like, rolling pin lady's butt head pasted on to, like, model body. The thing is, rolling pin lady head is, was formerly a Sophia Loren and it's, just, yeah. like, went through menopause. You yeah. know? Like... What I'm saying is Dan Brown is bad at writing. There are no there are no unbeautiful <laughs> Italian women is what I'm saying. Welcome to the Dan Brown Code, a podcast where we discuss the life and works, but mostly the works of the renowned author Dan Brown. I'm Forrest. I'm Lena. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, this is the first episode. We're going to talk about chapters 1 through 20 of Angels and Demons. Forrest, do you have any background information on Angels and Demons? Uh, it was published in a year I've forgotten. I think it's 2002. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I'll check uh, right now. It's, I believe, 2000, 2000. Okay, it's yeah. the third novel by Dan Brown, but the first one featuring his most famous character, Robert Langdon. Um, it's pretty bad. It's it's pretty awful, and it was uh, eventually turned into a movie. That's true. <laughs> starring Tom Hanks. But we're just going to get into it. Uh, what happened? What happened in these twenty chapters? So we meet Robert Langdon. He receives a mysterious call, uh, and is then whisked away from his lifestyle at harvard to cern laboratories in switzerland uh where he's called to see a corpse that has died in a symbology related murder and then he meets that corpse's daughter who's hot and they go to his lab Mm -hmm. to her lab she has a lab with her father (laughs) yeah their shared lab her lab is the ocean yeah Um, right and uh also a mysterious uh man is traipsing about doing mysterious but probably nefarious things and like kind of speaking arabic but like that's being very generous yeah so that's the basic plot that we've got going on and now we can kind of uh nitpick things so uh right off the bat it opens with that little fact page um which uh dan brown has a tendency to do you know just say like fact and then a fact um i was really struck by how narrative this fact was um it ends with like a leading question. His usual move, or at least his move in books after this one, has been basically to say, fact, whatever secret organization is a thing, uh, has done things, and then all references to art, architecture, and other factual claims made in the book are indeed factual. This one's a little um, cagier. Yeah, it, it contains the phrase, there is, however, one catch, which is not how you state facts, really. Unless you're like a very flamboyant researcher. Um, and then it ends with, will this highly volatile substance save the world or will it be used to create the most deadly weapon ever made? Which is really kind of setting us up for the rest of the book. I understand why you would introduce it in this way. I would just take issue with uh, calling it a fact. Yeah. And then the fact page is followed in this case by an author's note, which does contain the references to all works of art, tombs, tunnels, and architecture in Rome are entirely factual parenthetical as are their exact locations they can still be seen today the brotherhood of the illuminati is also factual uh one fact that i do know about angels and demons is that i don't know if this note was contained in the first edition but on later editions there were in fact inaccuracies in the location of some of the tombs and churches that had to get corrected 
Um, I take issue with the Brotherhood of the Illuminati is also factual because, like, there is no doubt that that is true. But, like, yeah. is every descriptor of the Brotherhood of the Illuminati factual? He doesn't say it is. is no, he is, doesn't. Is where he gets away with that in this book. He just says that it is factual, which is, it's like me saying, like, the Statue of Liberty is factual. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Jay-Z's name doesn't come up once in the book should tell you all you need to know about the fact that this book does not know what's happening with the Illuminati. <laughs> well, he says that there are, like, conspiracy buffs who yeah, love the Illuminati on the he internet. dismisses them. As, on the World as, Wide as Web. cranks. <laughs> the people uh, who invented the internet call it the World Wide Web. Right in the prologue, we get into one of my great gripes with Dan Brown. Um, what's your gripe with Dan Brown? I don't like when he writes in foreign languages and then immediately translates it into English for just, like, sentences on end. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and right here in the prologue, La chiave, the raspy voice replied, the password. Um, <laughs> which, to be fair, I didn't know what la chiave was. But he does this all the fucking time with everything. Um including beautifully when Robert Langdon is coming up to CERN and learns uh, from the sign outside that it's the Conseil European pour la recherche nucléaire. And he then says, <laughs> nuclear research. Robert Langdon was pretty sure his translation was correct <laughs> off of recherche nucléaire. It's it's insulting. Um, I also don't know. So apparently everyone at CERN speaks English. I don't. So are these people the international both language of science? Right. But Robert Langdon thought it was math. Um, so are they both speaking Italian or is one of them speaking English? Do, that do question is know? never fucking answered okay. throughout any time that we get foreign language stuff happening. Like what should happen, as with all good things, um, is what happens in The Hunt for Red October, the best movie ever made, where we zoom in on uh, Sean Connery as he's speaking in Russian. And then in the middle we start zooming out from his mouth again, but now he's speaking in English. So we understand that everyone <laughs> on the Russian submarine is speaking in Russian, but for our benefit as idiot viewers, they're just going to speak in English. There's none of that here. There's no clarification. Now, I haven't seen the, either any of these movies in like years and years, they're but I think, <laughs> I think they use subtitles. Um, I think briefly, but I don't... I th they might switch off uh, in the same way the novel does, kind of haphazardly. Okay. I don't know. I watched it like a week or two ago, and I don't remember. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, let's let's move on. I I feel my grip on reality, like, dissolving. Before we do talk about Robert Langdon, yep. I would like to talk about how Dan Brown is every character in this book, mm -hmm. um, which is something that he does do. <laughs> he tends to project, and everyone is either devilishly handsome or not quite as handsome but like very smart or yeah, just like dan brown noted handsome man. <laughs> um you y'all hopefully have a book in front of you but you can flip to the back and see um he's dressed exactly like robert langdon and we'll get into how he dresses yeah, in just a moment but like dan brown is not physically like robert langdon i don't know how dan brown sees himself but i see him and I don't really have the right metaphor for what he looks like. He just looks like a wimp. He's just bookish. He's a bookish yeah. person, and he's not, like, devilishly bookish. He just is no, bookish, and just, that's fine. he just looks like a little nerd. Yeah, and that's fine. So when we do meet Robert Langdon, he's having a dream in which he expresses a fear of his own mortality and aging, um, and then he gets a phone call on a phone and not on a fax machine, right? Yeah, the first one's a phone call, Yeah, and the guy's... Uh, just says he wants to see him immediately 
he learns he's a German guy, that he's a discrete particle physicist. Mm -hmm. Um, And pretty soon Langdon hangs up thinking that he's a crank. Right, because he gets a lot of cranks because he's very famous about symbols. Yeah, he's the symbologist. He wrote some books um, like The Symbology of Secret Sects, (laughs) The Art of the Illuminati, Part 1. Wikipedia is silent on if he ever wrote part two (laughs) (laughs) we never because after that he starts doing like simple crimes and so he doesn't have time to write anymore well no uh, after da vinci code he writes the lost symbols of the sacred feminine or something and we learn in the lost symbol that that book caused a delicious scandal (laughs) delicious scandal so robert langdon is uh i'm just gonna get into the description of him really quick um so he's not overly handsome in a classical sense, but all his f- female uh, colleagues uh, say he has an erudite appeal, um, and he's brown-haired and blue-eyed and has, like, a deep voice and is very tall and athletic and has, like, broad shoulders. But again, not too handsome, so don't no. don't go crazy. But you know? one assumes muscular. He was a varsity diver and maintains the body of a swimmer with a toned six-foot physique. We're also told that he's very cool because he wears blue jeans mm-hmm. on on the weekends, but then wears Harris tweed most of the time. Yeah. Um, and also his students love him and think he's so cool and he has his fraternal appeal and he like swims circles around the water polo team. In spite of being a strict disciplinarian. <laughs> so basically, he's the most uh, Mary Sue character in the universe. I kind of honestly picture him as Mitt Romney. Um, oh, a man whom I loathe, but like, <laughs> but like, I also loathe looks Robert like Langdon. Dan Brown. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Tom Hanks, give up the seat. You know, give it Tom to Mitt Romney. Is the fucking shittiest Robert Langdon. <laughs> Robert Langdon is not a dad. First of no. all, Robert Langdon is a bachelor, and it's, he's it's very a, defined by it. By his bachelorhood, is that what? Yeah, it's called? he's defined. He's defined by three things. Uh, this is a lot later in the book. I was just looking at it. He's he only has three loves, and it's swimming and symbology or something, <laughs> and and bachelorhood, which allows yeah. him to like sleep whenever he wants yeah. and like enjoy a glass of whiskey, which dads never do. <laughs> He enjoys brandy. Oh, brandy. Sorry, uh, sorry. I think whiskey And Nestle's quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Christ. His home is full of museum-grade artifacts. He's a giant douchebag, even though I also want that to happen he's, to me. Yeah, he's like a, a large-scale Frasier, like an extreme Frasier. Yeah. Um, I just started watching that show. <laughs> I, I can tell on Twitter. How are you liking it? Just it's real so quick. good. Okay, good. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> um, puzzlingly, he drinks Nesquik, uh, referred to as Nestle's quick in this book, um, which I don't think... I mean, I've been drinking Nesquik since I was small, pre-2000. So at what point in time was it Nestle's Quick? I don't think ever. I think that this might be a charming Dan Brown thing that I also do, where you just expand every abbreviated name into the longest version of it you can think of. (laughs) Um, So now we can get into our discussion of fax machines. Lena's done research for this episode. The reason why it comes up is that this the the no-fun German scientist sends him a fax of um, an ambigram, which is impossible because... How can you make an ambigram out of words? (laughs) And he faxes him this photo because it's 2000 and we're not like really hip to email yet. Soon after, a red light is blinking and he picks up the receiver um, and the the Maximilian Kohler, who is the, the scientist, is still on the line. And my question was, is that how a fax machine works? Because I'm 23 and I don't know... And I did some research, and according to faxauthority.com, um, <laughs> so 
the receiver is not really used to make phone calls. It's mostly just to like check to see if your fax machine has a dial tone. Um, but could you conceivably use it for a phone call? So here's the thing. Maybe I did not get a definitive answer. Okay. But if you have a dual ring situation in which you have two phone numbers for one phone line and they're both okay. in the fax machine, you could have the fax machine doing fax stuff and also receiving a phone call. But it wouldn't. You wouldn't. It like you wouldn't call someone through the fax line. I mean, the 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 dramatic point of it is like uh, Robert Langdon has dismissed this uh, German particle physicist as a fraud and a phony and an idiot. But then he gets this fax and sees the guy still on the line, and he's like, "Oh my god, this guy can't be joking around. He's got an ambigram uh-huh. uh, and a, a dead body with an ambigram. Terrible." <laughs> uh, um, uh, also, Dan Brown's calligraphy friend is actually a, a apparently within the world of ambigram art, like the guy. His name oh, is yeah? John Langdon, for whom the character Robert Langdon is named. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Okay. Um, Dan Brown first got in touch with him during his failed music career. When he made an album called Angels and Demons. Dan Brown's failed music career? Mm-hmm. You know so much about this. <laughs> he had an album called Angels and Demons about his <laughs> like religious stuff going on in 1994. <laughs> and he had John Langdon make him an anagram for it. And then later when he decided he wanted to write novels, he used that same ambigram for the cover and then contacted John Langdon again to have him make these Illuminati ambigrams. Dan Brown's... Uh, commission from this guy that can't have taken him more than an afternoon it can't be that hard to turn the word illuminati into an ambigram it's all just upright lines but langdon describes it as the epigraphical find of the century a decade of his research confirmed in a single symbol impossible to fake i i just want to say that dan brown is a great friend because like if you had made for me something and it was going in my book, I'd be like, it was the greatest song they'd ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> the lyrics were sublime. And... That's just honesty, though. Right. Fax machine, I don't know if that's how it works. If you do know, let me know. I have a theory that despite what he claims in a uh, in several places that his literary influences are mostly not modern popular novelists, that Dan Brown actually reads a lot of Tom Clancy because his writing is similar in that it is heavy on um acronyms and exact names of things and unnecessary detail (laughs) but employed just to bore the shit out of you so chapter four robert langdon's been convinced to go to the airport to meet this plane to take him to wherever this physicist is and we get a blow-by-blow of the drive that could not be more boring. Robert Langdon's Saab 900S tore out of the Callahan Tunnel and emerged on the east side of Boston Harbor, near the entrance to Logan Airport. Checking his directions, Langdon found Aviation Road and turned left past the old Eastern Airline buildings. 300 yards down the access road, a hangar loomed in the darkness. A large number four was painted on it. He pulled into the parking lot and got out of his car. I actually skipped over this when I was reading because I like didn't have which I did with like a, a lot of the fifth Harry Potter book where I just like skipped over descriptions. Um, and I this, so this is my first time reading that. So he goes onto like a super fancy aircraft. 
at this point in my notes, I wrote, uh, well, first I wrote, you idiot, Bobby Lang. It's a fucking plane. He was sending, he said he was sending a plane, you idiot. Because at some point he says, it flies. And it, come on. I mean, the, I, I know it's a joke, but like. Well, no, no, to be a little fair, <laughs> uh, it doesn't look like a plane. It's a colossal wedge. It doesn't really have wings. It just is itself a weird aerofoil. But he's told <laughs> that it is a plane. And it's sitting in a hangar. And he's but... like, it's it's fueled by slush or something. <laughs> slush hydrogen. Right. So <clears throat> uh, that was my idea. That was my that was my feeling there. Um, also, in this point, I wrote um, San Andreas levels of vehicle hopping. Um, because have you seen the film San Andreas? Not yet. I've been okay. meaning to. For Dwayne a while. the Rock Johnson, my personal hero pilots like four different vehicles like two helicopters and like a boat and like a car and so he he goes from his sub 900s to the flying wedge to some kind of very fast sedan mm-hmm. and it just you know it brought me back to that movie that's fair i like when the hero goes in a lot of vehicles well this is the book for you <laughs> his plane journey also features a thing that pisses me off about dan brown which is that he's a bad writer right. in spite of his career, like when he said he was trying to be a songwriter, like there's always a parenthetical. Oh, he paid the rent by teaching English at the Beverly Hills Prep School. And then when he moved back to be a novelist, he was also paying his rent, i.e. his job was being a teacher. So <laughs> this man has taught English for like a decade at this point. His job. And so this is where Langdon learns where he's going. Mm-hmm. He's done the math in his mind. He knows it's a short flight. And so it's it's, like, okay, it's got to be somewhere in New York or something. Where exactly is there? Langdon asked, realizing he had no idea where he was headed. Geneva, the pilot replied, revving the engines. The lab's in Geneva. Geneva, Langdon repeated, feeling a little better. Upstate New York. I've actually got family near Seneca Lake. I wasn't aware Geneva had a physics lab. The pilot laughed. Not Geneva, New York, Mr. Langdon. Geneva, Switzerland. That is, I don't know, six lines, and the word Geneva is repeated six times within them. <laughs> It's bad writing. It's not good writing to just use the same word over and over. It really bugs me. It, it reads really awfully, too, on the page because it's capitalized. And so all you see is Geneva, Geneva, Geneva. Um, it's also just stupid. Like, they, they explain away the fact that he knows that there is a Geneva in upstate New York by being like, I have family in Seneca Lake. Yeah. But, I mean, come on. Like, a, a German physicist called you on the phone and he was very stern in German. And, My name like, is Maximilian Kohn. <laughs> Koenig, Koenig. His last name is Kohler, but he's called he's called Koenig. There it is. Um, because he's the king, because he sits in a throne, which is his wheelchair. It's problematic. So, right. So, like, why would why would you think it was in upstate New York? You, I mean, I understand the hour away thing, but you just saw a wedge. Like, just yeah, you saw a fucking space plane, and you're like, okay, it's an hour away. We gotta go to New York. He's the dumbest professor I've ever I've ever met. He's a real idiot. Uh, later on, we get a description of him at a dinner party with some other professors <laughs> and that. it's like fucking preposterous uh we meet the hassa scene at, at around this point right yep. yeah he's serpentining through the street a verb that dan brown will use many times in many other novels <laughs> so here's what we get he has black eyes which i have black eyes so i'm like already starting to identify with this guy right you yeah. know like we're, we're birds of a feather Me too. At this it describes point. as a powerful man right and i I ID with that. <laughs> Dark and potent, um, deceptively agile. I started my uh, my notes with "Ah, yeah, internal flashback." <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> I was gonna say that too. So yeah, we meet him as he's rocking through the streets, but then we get a flashback within that because he's remembering his first conversation with his mysterious boss Janice. Um, and he does wonder, um, is, do you think like is it the two faced god Janice or maybe the moon of Saturn? <laughs> um, which is a fair thing to wonder. No, it isn't. Like, nah. Uh, you've got a mysterious crime boss like no it's the moon of saturn obviously it's he's very dumb but maybe the has seems just really dumb that he can't figure it out but then i don't know why he knows either of the uh aspects of janice i feel like i can't even blame the has scene for this one this is dan brown writing poorly okay this, is, this gets into something that is going to be a theme throughout this podcast and um so my personal feeling about writing is that you shouldn't have like erroneous words or or paragraphs mm. you know you shouldn't have like statements that don't fit into the storytelling it makes it awful to read and it is childish and like cinematic for no reason yep and this, this isn't even cinematic because it's an internal monologue what are you gonna have him like weighing the two options is it saturn is it a two-faced god um so the Hassassin doesn't need to have this conversation with himself he can be like reminiscent of the two-faced god right and it could yeah. be it could just end there to be yep. like oh two-faced what's mm, what's going on um and so is dan brown showing off that there are two like he knows that there are two options yes. of <laughs> i mean yes he is because he's awful <laughs> but it just makes me so mad i i can make you even matter <laughs> um so i've been i spent this morning reading um part of the transcript of testimony that dan brown gave at a trial he was being sued at for plagiarism and in part of that trial he talks about his writing process and honestly his whole career is like his wife who when he writes his novels it's his wife who does all of the publicity arranging for press tours arranging to get him on talk shows because i think she has some like showbiz connections um and his books still sell badly but then he describes his actual writing of the books. And um, A, the reason he writes short chapters is because his attention span is too short to write anything longer. Um, his defense for why he didn't plagiarize Holy Blood, Holy Grail is because he hadn't read it because it was too long and complicated and dense. Wow. Um, he's, all the research is just his wife does research in their separate office in their house. And then emails him the highlights of it and says something like dan read this or like just condenses notes down so all the research is actually his wife this is like a crazy <laughs> Zelda Fitzgerald situation Brown, who writes his books this I, is surreal it might be a normal relationship in real life but just like it feels weird to me about that research she did so we're, we're saying the has seen a lot it's this guy who's an assassin his actual connection to the Hassassin is unclear to me his, his but... ancestors were Hassassin so okay. it's been passed down okay um he was fighting their battle the same enemy they fought for ages um as far back as the 11th century when the enemy's crusading armies had first pillaged his land raping and killing his people declaring them unclean defiling their temples and gods plural stop stop stop, <laughs> stop. Um, yeah i have defiling their gods lmao um because we find out that he is uh, Muslim, right? Yeah, and the, he's like a an old like anti crusader Arab guy. Yeah. So, um, well, <laughs> the assassins themselves are so called. They're a sect of uh, they're a Shia sect that was around and they formed initially in opposition to the Seljuk uh, 
rulers who are a Sunni regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also wound up fighting Crusaders as kind of a side thing when the Crusaders came in. But their like traditional enemy is not, in fact, the, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. Yeah. It's the Seljuks. And I guess it worked. <laughs> I guess it did. So wait, so yeah, the gods thing. Uh, I don't. I mean, you probably know this. I'm not gonna like insult your intelligence, but you know, Muslims only believe in one god. So to say, like defiling their temples, <laughs> and, right? Like that's the whole point of Islam is la ilaha You know, like that's that's the whole. That's okay. Through through several books, you find out that he has never met an Arab or Muslim person in his whole life, Mm-mm. um, or, or or apparently his his wife hasn't. Yeah, because I am doubting his um his agency in this and all this yeah i'm like a little more lenient with the research in this one because uh i mean we learned that robert langdon barely uses the internet because uh (laughs) it's newfangled and scary to him Mm -hmm. so like they don't have the power i have right now i'm like what is is this right about the assassins i type into wikipedia and i learned that it's all wrong i don't think they could do that dan brown doesn't is afraid of the internet i mean robert langdon is so i assume dan brown also is okay Anyways, he gets out of the car and gets driven to the lab. It takes forever. It's very boring. Uh, it's uh, very fast, actually. I mean, the car is very fast. Yeah. But the, the, it takes a long time it to get there. It takes two pages to get there. <laughs> uh, yeah, in my time, it was it was <laughs> excruciating. We get to the Conseil Européen pour la recherche nucléaire, and he's like, nuclear research? <laughs> what? We get early on the idea that uh cern by its nature must be anti-religious he sees a big glass building uh and he notes it because he's always been fond of architecture um and his driver is like ah the glass cathedral and robert langdon says a church and his little driver says hell no a church is the one thing we don't have physics is the religion around here use the lord's name in vain all you want just don't slander any quarks or mesons i have um (laughs) it's just bananas but like i have a couple nitpicky things here one um there is no accents on the french words except for when we get to the cern um but he says it says langdon read the sign before them sécurité arrêté um and it doesn't have an accent on the e and so it looks like securite which could be like a a stone for all i know Mm, Um, i have a more advanced edition that has um the wrong accent on the second E in Securite and the right accent see? on the first one. It has an accent I goo in the first E and then a circumflex on the last E. What is happening? <laughs> Securite. <laughs> okay. Um, I did not notice that. Um, another thing really quick. Um, it says uh, just like he noted the transparent design of the glass building. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's just like the nature of glass when you build with it like it's not the des- you didn't design it to- oh my god <laughs> uh, oh god <laughs> so yeah he finally meets his uh physicist who called him on the phone maximilian kohler the general director whose nickname is der koenig the king one of us speaks german and one of us speaks well speak you speak very French. little german <laughs> kohler uh is a stern guy uh he's in a wheelchair um yeah, my note is Germans don't smile. 
Um, no. They go on a little tour of CERN. They're like, here's our free fall tube in which he dunks on a fat woman. He um, <laughs> he's like, oh, this overweight woman is having fun in a free fall tube. Oh, she did a thumbs up to me. I wonder if she knows that's a penis. And like, Ugh. it's it's just awful. And then... The section around the free fall tube has two things I'd like to note. Okay, go. The first one is Dan Brown using literary devices. Uh, he was an English teacher. He knows about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's learned that one square yard of drag will slow a falling body almost 20%. And then uh, he never suspected that later that night in a country hundreds of miles away, the information would save his life. That's foreshadowing. Yeah, I have foreshadowing in all caps over here. Um, <laughs> And then a little before that, he says, uh, as he sees this free fall tube with the lady inside of it, he says, my God, he thought, I'm in the land of Oz. A chapter later. He says the same thing, doesn't he? He says the same thing. He says, I'm in Oz, he thought, and I forgot my magic slippers. It's bad. It's bad writing. (laughs) You know, if this is the third time, does it at least follow the rule of threes? We haven't gotten there yet. I haven't noticed a third time. Um, I just, I... I don't know. Again, back to like, why would you include this? Like, I don't need to know about the drag on the, you know, like. No, but you do. Oh, need it to does. Know. Oh, it, it saves his life. So it is important. I yeah. see why. Okay. It's no, I forgot. similarly important to uh, <sighs> the students who are throwing frizzies back and forth while listening to Mahler's fourth symphony and wearing just a cavalcade of amusing physicist shirts um, <laughs> that we get throughout chapter eight. Uh, he's definitely seen some bumper stickers. He's seen the one with the little the Darwin fish. Yeah, the Darwin fish is is a is a good one. There's a no gut, no glory, yeah. where gut is general unified theory. This column is ionic. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, it's not ionic. And come on, I mean, but it's made of ions. <laughs> Who doesn't know about ions? I mean, I mean, who, what academic doesn't know about ions? Well, I, 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 I'm on Robert Langdon's side on the ionic okay. column shirt. Okay. It's not um, a shirt. It's a sticky note on a column, but uh, it's okay. That's true. So yeah, I don't know whose side I'm on. Like, presumably if someone put a sticky note on a column labeling just like, oh, this column is ionic or Doric or Corinthian. I would. You would check to see if it was. I would see if would. it was indeed correct. Yeah. Um, and it's not, except it is because it's made out of ions, which is not a thing I think I would leap to, even were I at a physics place. Okay. Unless someone was like, "Oh no, everyone here is talking about those ions." I'm like, I would just say, "Oh, then they're they're wrong. They're just idiots." Okay. See, I feel like I would be like, "Oh, I, I we're at CERN. I, I guess I get it. I've seen multiple humorous shirts by now." these nerds have a sense of humor that's fair um i don't i guess i'll never know it's kind of like a contrapositive were i robert langdon i don't know how i would react in that situation so we'll just move on and so finally he's led up to the room with a corpse in it the door swung open a blast of icy air hissed into the hall and hit langdon in the face uh okay so the, the body's like naked and cold and there's like a bit where he talks about his shriveled genitals and i'm like hot burn yeah and- it's really it's, it's <laughs> gross in a way that dan brown doesn't continued to do so much the mm-hmm. man lay in a frozen puddle of his own urine the hair around his shriveled genitals spidered with frost Ugh. it's pretty gross yeah <laughs> i approve of that <laughs> oh and then he explains about uh the illuminati mm-hmm. we finally get a long tedious explanation mostly wrong mostly wrong um i'm not gonna point out all the ways in which it is wrong because i didn't look them up i mean but... the big important one is uh 
there is a thing that he calls La Purga, the purge. Right. Uh, in which the Vatican decided to off all the Illuminati and so they took the four of the most prominent one and stake their bodies up around Rome with crosses branded onto them, mm-hmm. which did not happen at all. Right. Much less was it like the pivotal event that stopped the Illuminati Ooh. from being a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's going to come up in this book a lot. So it's probably helpful to note that you shouldn't try to find out the factual part of it because you can't because it's not a thing it's just nonsense um there is another like dan brown definitely knows muslims in which uh they talk about how the vatican denounced the brotherhood uh the, the illuminati brotherhood as shaitan which is an arabic word for uh the devil the devil satan you know um and um Koenig, Der Koenig, says, uh, shaitan, and then Brown says, it's Islamic. It means adversary, God's adversary. The church chose Islam for the name because it was a language they considered dirty. Um, is Islamic a language? It is not a language. Islam is not a language. I've been asked if I speak Islam before by people. I've also been asked if I speak hieroglyphics, but because I'm from North Africa, it's whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, Arabic is the language that that word is from, and Islam is not a language. <sighs> I don't know. But it's important we get it now, because it's like warming up for uh, some more race science coming up. Oh, yeah, a lot of a lot of race stuff. Um, and he continues throughout his books to not know anything about Arabs, which is incredible. Um, well, he knows that into them is bred an appetite for hedonistic pleasure something bred into him by his ancestors oh right right yeah also he knows they have black eyes and Mm -hmm. although someone has a soft brown eyes oh the madam has soft brown eyes we meet the hasasin in the next chapter again back at the farm um the hasasin is going to a brothel and he takes pride in his body. Okay, really quick. The Hassassin is a queen. Like, is a, just an extra, be- like, incredible, glowing paragon of, is paragon the word? It can be. He, he's just a pillar of self-confidence. And I, I can respect that um, as personally a pillar of self-confidence. But the Hassassin is... At a brothel, he knocks on the door. A an Arab woman, I guess, opens the door. Um, How and did we get her nationality? She has soft brown eyes. I. What did I think that? I don't Who's know. Who's the real racist? Who here? is the real racist? <laughs> I guess I just kind of assumed that's that, uh, it's, that's it's, on it's me. It's still Dan Brown because he's looking at an album of <laughs> the women available to him, and there's Marisa, an Italian goddess fiery a young sophia loren the only italian woman as we all know <laughs> sachiko a japanese geisha lithe no doubt skilled i can't breathe and kanara oh a God. stunning black vision muscular, muscular. Exotic. exotic dan brown and women dan brown is married to a woman <laughs> apparently a woman who clearly will like go several extra miles for the man and so i i am assuming that dan brown is an expert on women and that's why he describes these sex workers as uh, a geisha, which she is not because, okay, um, not not synonymous. It's just awful. It's awful to, and of course he picks uh, someone with an ivory abdomen at the end. He does. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to learn that he does not 
treat her well. No. But it's okay because she's an object. I think he literally says that. He says... To be fair, Dan Brown doesn't say she's an object, but... That he writes has a scene as having said yeah. that. Um, he crossed the room and ran a dark finger across her ivory ab- abdomen is a normal way to write and not at all, like, mildly racist. That image is so predatory <laughs> and awful. Okay, I... Look, I'm not saying it's, like, objectively morally reprehensible. It just it just keeps me out a little bit. I'm just personally a little uncomfortable with that characterization of that scene. No, it's yeah. it's not good. You can show him being a violent, misogynistic person without being, like, his dark finger traced across her ivory yeah. abdomen. Like, I, the, the whole thing in context, like, each particular moment is borderline but like all together it just paints like a very bad picture um you just get the sense that dan brown's like got some uh hang-ups sure yeah or like maybe just hasn't uh addressed whatever images he already has like hasn't like examined um just how he thinks about foreign men sleeping with women um sleeping with european women anyway um dan brown if you want to talk uh <laughs> let me know i won't yell at you i just want to know what's going on here after uh the first half of our brothel scenes we get more later uh there's some more talking about the masons and the illuminati and it's very boring and pointless and they're doing it in a room with a corpse i think which is yeah yeah they're just standing uh, over the corpse in the, in the freezing room with the corpse because cern has the technology to turn any apartment in their complex into a uh, frozen waste using Freon. Right, Freon cooling. Some stuff about... There's a lot about Galileo in here. It's not that important. Um, it's, it's boring. We learned that uh, they don't want to call the police because his research or something, and that's why he called Robert Langdon the symbologist. Oh, Robert Langdon does not need a, a passport. That was mm. something that... Okay, so he gets off the, <laughs> the wedge... And he gets into a car, and I'm like, wait, does he need a passport? And then later in my notes, I wrote, never mind. Because they're like, oh, he's like, oh, shit, I forgot my passport. And the guy's like, oh, we have a standing agreement with the Swiss government. And I'm like, do you? Not a problem. Is that real? My guess is it's not real. It can't be. (laughs) So the Illuminati are involved with the Masons. They've, like, infiltrated and taken over the Freemasons um, and moved to America and, like, created institutions and stuff to finance their New World Order. Um, and then Robert Langdon says, it can't have been the Illuminati because the Illuminati love scientists and they wouldn't kill a scientist. And he's like, well, there's one thing you don't know about Leonardo Vetra. He's also a priest. Yeah, he's also a priest. Um, elsewhere, there's a guard and he, there's a mysterious canister that shows up on a video screen from like a security camera. It's we'll come writing. back to that. Very, very good writing. And so we go into... Langdon says holy mother of jesus as he walks into a room that has a giant painting of the virgin mary in it which makes me sad um but did you think it was cute a little bit (laughs) it it angered me um so what we find out is did you want to take it from here I mean, he's a priest. He's got a bunch of shit on his desk that's, like, priest stuff. Um, my, my favorite thing is they were like, oh, he's definitely, he says, talk about eclectic. And I'm like, is that eclectic? Or is it, like, a carefully selected uh, array of artifacts meant to clearly show that someone has interest both in religion and in 
Science. Science. Which um, nobody else has. No one else has. Okay, so my question was, how does how could Robert Langdon not know about religion and science being intertwined in other cultures and other times? Because Robert Langdon was like, there's no yeah. way. There's no way there's a science priest, right? Not in the world. Although he is at Harvard, and they have the School of Divinity there. And people at the School of Divinity do are often involved in... Who? I mean, Harvard was like very specifically founded as a religious school. Right? Yeah, right. I mean... All the Muslim scholars who were also scientists and just science. Oh, my God. So for Robert Langdon to be an expert in religion. God, I don't like defending him since he is. No, specifically, let's do it. Like he's a scholar of the Illuminati. Uh huh. And in this world, in the book, the Illuminati are very specifically an order of uh, people who are in opposition to the church, but have to do so stealthily. And so I think he would probably explain any scientist who also appears to be a devout religious figure as basically just saying, oh, they were faking the religious stuff because they had to to avoid persecution. And, like, actually science is the mortal enemy of religion. And so I suspect that would be how he would explain away um, everything. I, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re- reply to that um, <laughs> This on my page 44 somewhere in your book. He says, spirituality and physics, Langdon had spent his career studying religious history, not just the Illuminati. And if there was one recurring theme, it was that science and religion had been oil and water since day one. Arch enemies. Unmixable. I do have that highlighted with the note giant eye roll next to it. <laughs> so, uh, no, he does know. I mean, he's apparently known about science and spirituality since day one. And so yeah. it's not really an excuse. He has this thing where he idolizes science, but then also paragraphs later posits science as just as kind of reactionary and bad as religion. Also, he doesn't know anything about science. No, not at all. He knows zero things about science. But Vetra had enemies in the scientific world. Um, Scientific purists despised him for trying to find the religious connection in science. Um, They felt that using analytical physics to support religious principles was a treason against science. Which in no way posits science as just like an alternate religion to religion, <laughs> uh, even though they're 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 mad that Vetra discovered some connection between particles that supports his religious beliefs because scientists get mad when new science is done. Right, that's how scientists are about science. Yeah. Um, I so I'm gonna move a little bit forward here because yep. it's really easy to get caught up in how how awful this chapter. It's so bad. Um. So they go back into the living room where the dead body is. Um, Robert Langdon is nauseous because of the smell of frozen urine. Uh, does frozen urine have a smell? I, I kind of figured it wouldn't because yeah. it's frozen. <laughs> um, I didn't do an experiment or anything. I just have questions. Um, and then, uh, so the body, I don't want to like give you all the gory details, you guys, but the body is like, it's naked and it's... The head is twisted completely backward and is yeah. face down on the carpet. And D- Darkonic says, oh, you haven't seen something. And then reaches out of his wheelchair and takes the head and like twists it around and it like makes su- noises. And an eye is missing. And my question is, how did Darkonic know that the eye was missing? It has has the body already been disturbed and then retwisted back? Yeah, I think that's what it has to be. I think it was, has to be before he froze it, he went and found it. Notice the eye was missing by presumably turning the head over and then back around and then froze it and then twisted it again. So I hadn't, yeah, 
I hadn't occurred to me before, but that doesn't seem like good police work. It seems um, uh, physically challenging for him and also uh, definitely That's tampering. True. He is struggling against his handicap. Yeah. The book's words. Okay, um, so that's my feeling. His eye is missing, and it's like you'll find out why later. Um, and I'll just tell you why. It's because there's a retinal scan at one of the labs. It's not yep. that big of a deal. No, but it does. Uh, Langdon is convinced throughout this entire thing that the Illuminati cannot be behind this murder because uh, the Illuminati are gone. They were destroyed in La Purga. And then his new thing when he sees the eye is like, ah, oh, this can't be Illuminati. The Illuminati, or second thing, sorry. First thing is Illuminati are dead and gone. Uh, second thing is the Illuminati wouldn't target a scientist, but oh, he's a priest. They're a natural enemies, so maybe they would. Mm-hmm. And then third thing, he sees the eyes missing. He's like, oh, see, it can't be them. They don't go in for mutilations and like gross shit because they're good science people. Right. And so that's why, oh, it's not a random mutilation. This is actually for a purpose. Right. Uh, Dakonic is like, oh, but you see, it is for a higher purpose. And it's like, I don't know about the phrase higher purpose there, but just go ahead. Um, so then they go outside, and this is where we get introduced to the female lead of this book. She's so sexy, but she's not too hot. sexy. She's not, though. It says, like, she's not too beautiful. No, um, but, like, she's, <laughs> but, but I think he forgets that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, so he, he talks about her full earthly figures, and she's Italian, and she's not overly beautiful, but her um, she exudes a, a raw sensuality, which is a fine way, I guess, to I mean, describe first, a woman. First, we do get, because Dan Brown's a good feminist, um, first we get some stuff about her work before we get the physical We do, attributes. we do. But then we get to the sleeveless top and the, um, the, grace, the gracefulness and the grace um the chestnut skin and the long black hair um and then of course we get to the breasts which um in my notes i wrote gotta describe those titties um because how will you know she's a woman if we don't know what kind of titties she has you you know um and then he's told that she practices yoga and is a strict vegetarian Mm -hmm. and langdon muses and says, the ancient Buddhist art of meditative stretching seemed an <laughs> odd proficiency for the physicist's daughter of a Catholic priest. It's it's 2000. It's the year 2000. Yoga's been around, you know? We don't... Do we, do we need... Do we need to be told what yoga is? We know yoga. It's very strange. Um, she assumes Robert Langdon's cop because normally when someone's murdered, you call the cop. Right. Um, but he's not... <laughs> And she's like, why is there not a cop here? You didn't call the police? You didn't tell anyone? Um, And her colleagues are like, did you disprove any more of Einstein's theories today? It's true. Her colleague, the king has kept all this very quiet about Vittoria's, or Leonardo, her dad's death. Um, How does, how does Leonardo the priest have a daughter, Vittoria? We'll find out soon. Right. Um, Uh, Also, just really quick, her deep sable eyes are filled with emotions Langdon could not place. Although in the line prior, right in the line prior, it's like she had been crying, and uh, Robert Lincoln has zero emotional intelligence and cannot place grief. Um, So just a real, it's hard to eligible bachelor there. It's hard to read the emotions on unmistakably Italian faces. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I forgot about the Mediterranean (laughs) flesh. (laughs) Um, I wrote love to be described as Mediterranean flesh in my notes because. I love when men call me that personally. I like when people describe my limbs. Um, 
my strong and toned limbs radiating the healthy luminescence of Mediterranean flesh that had enjoyed long hours in the sun. Flesh. <laughs> because, uh, so her oh, work, it's so gross. what she is, is she's a bio entanglement physicist, which as far as I can tell is not a real thing. Um, but neither is a theophysicist, which is the kind no. that Leonardo Vetra is. I, th- I think what happened is that Dan Brown or Mrs. Dan Brown uh, ran across an article that mentioned uh, the Higgs boson, the God particle, and got like too excited about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that book is uh, mentioned in this yeah. book. It's on his shelf. Okay, so uh, she said she's like breezing past her colleagues. They go to um, her. They don't show her the body, which is fair. No, and then they they go to her lab where he realizes that there that there is a retina scan, and he find like he finds like drops of blood on the floor. Yeah, um, she walks there with her legs driving in fluid efficiency. Right, right. Um, and then they go in, and it's cold, right? Uh, I don't think. Oh it's no, they super go underground. Cold. They go underground, like to very far underground. Six stories underground, and they have to walk along uh, what Robert Langdon erroneously assumes to be a straight tunnel mm-hmm. uh, down to where the lab is, even though they're actually walking along the subtle curvature of the Large Hadron Collider. Yes, uh, Robert Langdon is claustrophobic, and we do learn this at this point. Um, did I get to? No, not quite yet. Oh, wait, no, we did. Uh, we get some backstory on Robert Langdon and his dad, uh, yeah. which I noted as frowny face. Um, his dad died of, I guess, some kind of like Death. heart failure. <laughs> he was like a highly, very stressed out man with high blood pressure, yeah. and he had a heart attack, it looks like. He had like. a bad relationship with Robert Langdon. Yeah, Robert Langdon like tried to buy him a rose, which, okay, fair, like... I, I'm on his dad's side. Like it's it's a trinket. Like what am I yeah. supposed to do with like like if There's, my kid gave me a a blown glass rose? What am I supposed to like yeah, take it down from the shelf every day thing. and like play with it? Like no, I'm an adult with like stocks and shit. And then Robert Langdon pulls a power fucking move and sees it's been put on a shelf where it can't be seen. So he for just, a like, couple days, so he just takes it and returns it. For a couple days, a few days later, he takes it down and takes it back, and his dad like never notices that That's it's so gone. Cool. His dad absolutely notices. Like uh-huh, I guess okay <laughs> i mean you know your kids you wouldn't be like oh why would my why would it disappear you'd be like oh my piece of shit son who's like <laughs> awful and like wants to dunk on people all the time took it that's fine i mean it's a christmas present from my kid i don't need it um anyway it's a fun little story for any face um we learned we, we are that conversation you talked about yeah so we the, the the college professor party um they're sitting there and uh oh just really quick it's yep. a flashback this is an internal yes. flashback in langdon's head about the first time he heard of a super collider over dinner with some colleagues at dunster house in cambridge a physicist friend of theirs had arrived for dinner and he was mad that they canceled the superconducting super collider which was a particle accelerator that the u.s was gonna build yeah um, but then like the bible belt wouldn't let them do it which yeah, you know because on brand for america mm-hmm. um and that, that's real. I, I did read about okay. that. Yeah. So um, he's talking it, about it, uh, the physicist guy. And a part that bugged me is presumably most people as party are humanities professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Brownell's saying that fully accelerated particles circled the tube at over 180,000 miles per second, mm-hmm. like you say at a party. Mm-hmm. And then one of the professors, but that's almost the speed of light, which... 
I know a lot of humanities students and like professors and stuff. And uh, I can guarantee you, if you were to say 180,000 miles per second, not a single goddamn one of them would know that that is almost the speed of light. Also, I don't think any science professors would either because they don't measure speed it, in miles yeah. per second. It would, it would be meters per second, you know? Yeah. I Yeah, that really got me. And like, <laughs> if, if you are the kind of person who knows that that's about the speed of light, you already fucking know what a particle accelerator is, is what I posit. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, so yeah, then they talk about that and why, and they smush the particles. We're learning now what particle accelerators I, do. I missed a part. Uh, Harvard's, what? The, the Harvard's the poet residence. residence. Yeah, I'm getting there. So we learned about what like a particle acceler- accelerator even does, and that they, it crashes particles together, and so you can look at their component parts. And the poet in residence, you, you want to read it? It sounds to me, he said, <laughs> like a rather Neanderthal approach to science, akin to smashing clocks together to discern their internal workings. Poets are really good at metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of them drops his fork at the fancy dinner party and storms out of the room because he's a child. Um, the, yeah, the scientist guy is mad that the poet is uh, getting poetry all over his science, and so he drops his fork. Um, yeah, so that's not how that works. I mean, usually you talk to people. Like, clearly you don't understand the significance of like particle accelerators. Yeah. Let me tell you about them, since we're talking about them at a dinner party anyway. But like, <laughs> scientists in Dan Brown's world are all like, militant weirdos. Yeah. So chapter 16, we go back to uh, this mysterious complex where the guy is surrounding on a camera, and we don't know where it is yet, which is infuriating. This chapter is 100% pointless. It shouldn't be there. Um, it's a heavily guarded compound, a densely packed collection of 32 separate buildings covering a half mile radius. The camera chapter is very boring and pointless, and I don't want to talk about it. Right. The camera, just really quick, just for plot reasons. Okay. <laughs> the, the camera that I described earlier that the, the, like it's, sho- it's showing something different that it normally isn't showing in a different country. Yeah. Um, is they're like someone must have moved it, but it's within the compound, but yeah. it's a huge compound and we don't know where it is and it would where take forever to find it. Um, then we got a chapter that I think is like genuinely good. Yeah, it's really sweet, you guys. I cried. I I, I did. I cried real tears. I mean, granted, it was like two a.m. and I was emotional, but like Vittoria Vetra is this like little Italian orphan girl, and she's sitting there like looking at raindrops, and they're like trying to get her to come and such so she doesn't catch like pneumonia. And this young priest is like, "Let's." It seems like you're curious. Like, let's talk about gravity and and rain and and things and it's so cute and then he adopts her and he and it's so for a minute i'm like there's no way (laughs) he's like i just got a post in geneva so i'm gonna go there and in six months i'll come back for you and if i was her i'd be like there's no way he's coming back (laughs) right but he does come back for her and she moves to geneva and has a dad oh my god it was so sweet and and other like research partners, <laughs> and now her dad is dead. Yeah, <laughs> heartbroken. So like, I read it twice because I read it the first time. I was like, this was like good and sweet, and I liked it. Yeah. And then I read it again, and I was like, oh wait, there's still dumb things in there. <laughs> okay, let's do um, it. So like, more of the like anti-science stuff after when he's announced he's going to Geneva to study physics. Physics, Victoria cried. I thought you loved God. Yeah, it's been a while, right? That, um, they, that they've known each other, or no? Yeah, it's been a while, and like he's been teaching her science. Um, and then the other 
thing that leapt out at me is that Vittoria doesn't know what adopt means. She's an orphan. Surely that's the only thing she ever thinks about. I've seen Annie. They think about it a lot. <laughs> What's adopt mean? Maybe she said. Maybe he said it in English because that's the universal that language be. of science. And she's and like, "What is that up. word?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it just occurred to me. Maybe the thing that's not hot about Vittoria Vetra is maybe when she was an orphan, she was like malnourished and her teeth were all fucked up. Oh, maybe she has bad teeth. Yeah, maybe. Um, really cute story about meeting her dad, and now she's very sad yeah. that her dad is dead. Um, she thinks my father dead very often. She doesn't like De Koenig because he's, no, he's, uh, he's stern and, and yeah. Germans don't smile. Um, did we get to the point where her eyes are ascending yet or not oh, quite? Oh, uh, Robert Langdon, who is a researcher, has never seen a scatter plot before, which is pretty That's exciting. True. Um, modern art, <laughs> Jackson Pollock on amphetamines. <laughs> <laughs> he mused, um, he muses a lot. There's a lot of music. He's so fucking dumb. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, we we finally make it to the lab, and there's blood on the floor um, where the retina scan is, which confirms to Robert Langdon that the eye was removed for use. Yeah. Um, also, Robert Langdon, who knows the speed of light, but doesn't know that matter is energy. <laughs> that sounds pretty zen. And uh, I think that even when robert langdon was going through high school in what the 60s or 70s or something that e equals mc squared was like a thing you knew about right which very specifically outlines it comes from that assumption yeah that energy is matter and vice versa <laughs> i'm saying that robert langdon's an idiot <laughs> that's what we're saying here um yeah. so we go to the lab and then we cut away back to the Hassa scene who has finished copulating with this yeah. poor, poor sex worker. Um, and her hands are like bruised from being tied to the bed. And uh, there's a lot of, in his country, women were possessions. Well, weak. So, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So from, from, in addition to her swollen hands and shit, also he's wondering if her current sleeping is just a ruse to prevent her from having to continue to, uh, quote avoid further service to him oh my god uh and yeah then it does go into in his country women were possessions so were possessions so so in the modern day they are possessions no i think this whole book is like past tense oh right yeah sorry 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 yeah, Langdon was. Victoria yeah. thankfully did not. Okay, notice. in his country, women were possessions. Um, weak tools of pleasure. So, okay, so do you know where the Hassassin were since you did the research? I uh, should. Uh, <laughs> I just look at the, where the Seljuks were. I want to say probably somewhere in Turkey. Okay, let's look it up because <laughs> women in Turkey are not chattel. Okay, so what I'm seeing here is like mostly Iran, yeah. right? And like if you've seen pictures of women in iran in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s and if you've seen persepolis and if you've met an iranian woman like women in i mean they're not chattel to be trained i mean uh, maybe in like in like a texas cult type situation you know how like in like cults like where people wear like the cult dresses and everything here like women are chattel and they're married at 12 so like maybe in like a cult situation in iran but like like um okay so I'm okay so it's like Yemen and Turkey and Palestine and 
parts of Iraq and like, yeah. like it doesn't touch on Saudi Arabia. Like, what 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 in which of these countries is women chat? What? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I think that what's happening is that the mahogany skin Hassa scene is just from like Muslimistan and in <laughs> Dan Brown's mind. He's from Agrava. Yeah, that's a place where women don't have rights as a because his country is contrasted with here in Europe where women feigned a strength and independence that both amused and excited him. Uh, Vetra's lab is cool. We yeah. go back at Vetra's lab. It is an she, Apple yeah. store. There's, um, pillars, there's pillars in it. It's, it's white, stark white invented on all sides by computers and specialized electronic equipment. Uh, otherwise known as an Apple store, um, which, you know, I, I would not be surprised if this book was read and then they designed the, the uh, yeah, stores, I you think- know? I think walking into an Apple store, if you were like walking in from the past, from the year 2000, you'd be like, wow, this place is futuristic right. as shit. Yeah, wildly futuristic even. Victoria moves slowly. She's like sad because she's like never been in this lab without her dad before. Um, and they ask if anything has been stolen and nothing has apparently. Um, and we find out that um, her father uh, did a did a thing with a, with a lhc yeah and he made antimatter and he it. made he made a universe and antimatter and they were like well how do you like <laughs> if it's if it's if there's matter in these um pods pods cylinders cylinders um like how do we know that he made it like it could have come from anywhere and she was like no there's a certain kind of matter that he like like only he could have made it you know like it, we can't we you, bleh, you can't just get it you can't like buy it on amazon yeah it's anti-matter and so everyone's very excited because there's antimatter like chilling in these cylinders. There's a lot of Star Trek bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, bef- oh. Before that, though. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go um, ahead. Some more of just Dan Brown being very good at writing about women. <laughs> um, so she did, she, she did some breathing to calm down because of her yoga. Mm-hmm. And Langdon could not believe the metamorphosis. Vittoria Vetra had been transformed. Her full lips were lax, her shoulders down, told you about full lips. and her eyes soft and assenting it's so <laughs> it's so slimy ascending oh god um there's a point in which creationism is defined as the battle over how the universe came to be do you know if that's if that's real because creationism is is a belief system yeah well so i mean creationism i think at least in like the context that i always talk about it uh-huh. is not its own belief system it's just a particular interpretation of christianity sure okay this is going off the beginning of genesis god said let there be light and everything we see appeared out of a vast emptiness which is like not technically what genesis says um um in the beginning there is like there's dark there's nothing there's dark and then there's, he creates there's, light. yeah there's not nothing there's like formless void and like stuff but right. like, it doesn't have form so it's, there's not nothing there's like stuff <laughs> right but it's like Universe My, Plato. <laughs> the biblical commentaries I've read are very clear on this being an important point. <laughs> um, but creationism is not the name for the battle over how the universe came to be, is it? No. That's, okay. I think that's cosmogony or something. Robert Langdon shocked to discover the Catholic Church first proposed the Big Bang Theory, right. which I didn't research because, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't really care Proposed that much. by a Catholic monk, George Lemaitre, in yeah. 1927, which... Something being proposed by a Catholic monk does not make it a proposal of the Catholic Church. 
we got some American centric stuff where one was like, I thought it was proposed by Harvard astronomer Edwin Hubble, which I kind of buy him knowing because he's a Harvard astronomer. Sure. Um, and then he like gets mad because it's called the Hubble telescope and yeah. not the Lemaitre telescope. <laughs> um, it's it's fine. Um, and so basically we get a recap of like my father really believed that uh, God had a, a role to play in the Big Bang or like some immense source of energy yeah. created you know like if it's god or buddha or whatever although i'm just gonna leave it there okay yeah. <laughs> um she is assenting and and she's triumphant and and she's feeling better because she's showing off her research this is the first time anyone's ever seen the research and yeah. and she's sad because her dad's not there to unveil it with her um it's it's like not this last part of the, the chapter isn't that awful yeah, so basically the important point is that she and her dad have produced varying sample sizes of antimatter, uh-huh. which if it comes into contact with normal matter will cause a annihilation reaction, which is basically a big-ass explosion that blows things up. And uh, I don't think we learn what has happened in this chapter yet, but we're going to find out that a big chunk of it's been stolen. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be bad. Um, I have a question. Yeah. And you can cut this. So the ca- the canisters. <laughs> yes. Does antimatter float? I mean, so the idea of the canisters is, yeah, it makes like a magnetic field mm, that in keeps the vacuum, them in suspension. In which, yeah. Okay. So I... it's like it's like those toys or whatever that the charbonage or something where mm. things are floating because of magnets. Okay. Um, and then in the movie it looks cool. <laughs> uh, then we. Final yeah, chapter. Our final chapter for this episode. Uh, the Hassassin. He literally walks down a hallway. It rules. He's it's great. He's like the torch in his hand is overkill, but it's for effect, and he can't. There's no mirror for him to like see how dope he looks in his cloak, but like he knows he looks perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's this is the this is where I really start to identify very deeply with the assassin <laughs> who like is just doing things for himself to look cool to nobody. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I like him a lot. Me too. I, I feel that, you know? There was no mirror in the passage to admire his disguise, but he could sense from the shadow of his billowing robe that he was perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's, so he's like feeling really good because he's yeah. doing like, he's part of like this big game of like secret societies and he's like his, his boss janice is dope and like trusting him with a lot of stuff and then he starts to count in air in quote arabic unquote wahad tintain so i did some research i speak tunisian arabic and a little bit of fusha but like uh, and but i have friends who speak different kinds of arabic and i asked a lot of them if they say tintain and they all said no and then i went on the internet and i said tintain and everything the only i searched tintain arabic and the only things that came up were people being like in angels and demons he uses <laughs> tintain to mean two and it's wrong so as far as i can tell nobody says tintain it's ethnain in fosha and it's like variations on that in different okay. dialects um so I don't know where he got Tintane from. That's exciting. I it was really exciting to see other people be like, that is wrong. <laughs> it's it's always good to come across fellow Dan Brown skeptics in the wild. There was a book that I, I couldn't get an ebook of, unfortunately, and it, it was missing a big chunk of where they were going to explain the Tintane mm-hmm. thing. Um, but it's a whole book being like just 
lines from this book and like a paragraph of like this is bullshit and then another line are you familiar with the blog language log no uh, i think it's university of pennsylvania or something okay that runs it uh there's a big controversy and controversy in linguist twitter a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago about it um because some jagoff who runs it wrote an article about why he doesn't think the singular they is good i'm, I'm glad that uh, you're in uh linguist twitter yeah uh i'm an observer um but they have a whole run of articles about Dan Brown and why they hate him. And <laughs> it's weird. I will send you links. They're very good to read. Please do. Um, so to wrap up the episode, sure. I think we want to do uh, winners and losers, which are just our favorite and least favorite individual um, or anything from this section. So do you have a, uh, let's start with winner. Do you have a winner for this section? A winner for this section? I don't know um, if we're going to keep those particular titles for them. Sure, sure. But... My favorite person in this section, despite the sexual violence, which is not something I thought I'd ever say <laughs> in my life. Um, but again, I'm I'm kind of ascribing that to Dan Brown being an awful, yeah. awful author, um, is the Hassassin. I, I can really get behind just kind of doing things for like, just doing it for, for yourself, you know, just doing you and being like, I'm perfect and my ancestors are dope Yeah, and um, my robe is beautiful and I got a torch, you know? I'm pretty sure that he will be my winner or favorite in future sections. Mm-hmm. In this one, like most of his screen time is the, is is, a, is the, pro- is the scene. Is sex worker stuff. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I read it a little bit ahead, so maybe that's, that's yeah. coloring. Okay, so, um, so for this section specifically, let's hold on. <laughs> I'm going to say that fat lady in the tube. That's a good answer. She's she living life and she's the only one who gets a parachute. She's so cool. And thumbs up does not mean penis no. as, as you uh, yeah. researched. And I want to do indoor skydiving. Like, yeah, you, she's a, not only is she a, like a physicist and like working at CERN, yeah, but and- she's having the time of her life de-stressing in a free fall <laughs> tube. And Robert Langdon, has the nerve <laughs> to be like this overweight woman in her like silly suit with yeah. a parachute. Fuck off, Robert Langdon. Do you work at CERN? No. What the? Oh. You yeah, go, fat lady. I think, I think that's correct. I think she is probably the best. But my personal, my, my guy in this section okay, let's do it. is the pilot of the space plane. Who <laughs> They hop into this plane and he's just like, that's my space plane. It runs on slush hydrogen. And he fucking blasts Garth Brooks the whole way there. <laughs> that rules. <laughs> I love that. That was amazing. Wasn't there another um, country singer that was mentioned? Oh, maybe. Shania Twain or something? God, I hope so. (laughs) If if I ever get to ride on a space plane, there better fucking be Shania and or Garth (laughs) playing. 100%. What about a loser? A loser for me? Um, who do I hate aside from Robert Langdon? Um, it doesn't have to be aside from Robert Langdon. I just, (laughs) I just need to know why in this particular section, that person was particularly shitty. Ah, you know what? Um, I'm gonna say uh, Dracónic. I'm gonna say Maximilian Kohler. I almost put him as my winner. I like him a lot. Really? He he tampered with evidence. Mm, Yeah. And he's just generally humorless. Um, True. And uh, yeah, not not a fan. And I'm sure like he might redeem himself later, but like he touched the body and (laughs) the eyes, and you could just say that. You know, you, they needed the eye for a retinal scan later. Like, it didn't have to be a secret. Yeah. Um, whatever. Yeah, mine is the physicist at the dinner party. Um, Which, oh, the the one who gets, Imagine, like... imagine this. 
So you've been invited to a dinner party. I think it says he like strolls in saying this. He strolls in mad that they canceled the particle accelerator. Mm-hmm. So you walk into a dinner party. You're pissed off because the government's done some shit. I think we can all identify with that at this particular juncture in time. Sure. Um, you walk into a party yelling about some bullshit. Um, your colleagues ask you to explain the bullshit. You explain it. And then one of them cracks a joke about it <laughs> and you storm out of the fucking dinner party. That mid, sucks. Mid, mid bite. Cause he throws yeah. his, his fork down or whatever. Yeah. Like, I mean, what a baby good for him for getting out of there. Like I wouldn't have wanted to stay, <laughs> but like also that guy sucks. I don't want my dinner party. Right. Um, he, I hate him. <laughs> yeah. Those are the winners and losers for and sure. Then finally, uh, I'd like you to grade this chunk of book on a letter grade system of, uh, just its general of Dan Brownness or of quality. <laughs> Why don't you give us both of Dan Brownness? I'm giving it, uh, let's say an A minus. Okay. Because you get like <laughs> beautiful but not too beautiful woman. Yeah. We get like Nestle's quick and and Robert Langdon's Harris tweed jacket and like hints of um, claustrophobia. We get uh, just he- the most heavy handed foreshadowing in the universe. That's true. Um, and we get a fact and we yeah. get, you know, a mysterious phone call because of a symbol crime. It's so Robert. It's so it's so DB. You know. I was gonna grade it lower than that at first because I was sort of hung up on the fact that like some of these are fairly like half formed and nascent things that will spring into just like the general Dan Brown isms. Uh huh. But I think you're right. I think they set the archetypes. I think I can't give it any lower than an A. Yeah, it was. It was very Dan Brown. As far as uh, overall quality of book, I, I think I think the right thing to do is actually to grade it on a how much pleasure did it bring to you? Because <laughs> quality wise, I think they're all going to be pretty bad. So there was a lot of uh, quote Dan Brown loves women unquote, and yeah. there was a lot of uh, Dan Brown definitely knows Muslims unquote. Um, and so because of those, I found this section uh, almost unreadable. I would like stop every. <laughs> every five pages in rage and like go do something else uh from my memory of this book it does get better (laughs) yeah um there's not for me personally as like a person who inhabits all these identities oh i'm also like a fat person so (laughs) uh, triply attached (laughs) right there's a lot happening here um so also i'm mediterranean hence the flesh there's a lot happening i know i'm just a target I, i just feel like a victim anyway so he calls Hannibal stupid. He does not. No, not yet. <laughs> I'm sure that's coming in I the future. I can't imagine it would. Everyone likes Hannibal. I know. He's the coolest. He's the leader of the um, So my point being, like, I-, I found it hard to read this book, this section at least, because, uh, like, every few pages I was, like, my blood was boiling and I was I had to, like, go get some sparkling water or something. Um, but I, from my memory, it gets better. So um, I'm going to grade it for enjoyability C- minus this time. Um, it was still like <laughs> kind of like boozy and like pointless, yeah. and that's what I enjoy in these books. Um, yeah, I think I'm going C plus. Okay. Uh, it just in terms of it's a, it was a slog to get through. Yeah, it was in a way that it shouldn't be, in the way that it typically isn't. Like I yeah. I I skimmed part of the Da Vinci Code the other week, and it's like it is fun. It's a page turner, yeah. and it's like well paced, and this is just. You know, he's still getting his footing. Yeah, he's getting into it, uh, and it takes a little while. Yeah. 
So I think for the next episode, we should go up to, um, I don't know, I want to keep it the current pace and go up to chapter 40. Sure, we'll go through chapter 40. Okay. Okay. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Uh, this has been the Dan Brown Code. And uh, we'll see you next time. Have a good one. <laughs> Have a great one, you guys. And, and don't assault any sex workers on the way. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>